Welcome to the Forbidden Forest. This is Roe reading chapter 23 of Death and Other Origin Stories. Hallowed be thy name. Regulus Black was born in autumn, just after the summer rains. It was a tepid afternoon in early September, and the wind was uncommonly warm, windows open wide, and sunlight long and languid across the dark hickory of the green room floor. Regulus Black was born to his mother, singing and grunting and laughing and crying, thighs streaked with blood, kneeling naked in the middle of the room. He was born to his mother, and she caught him herself, bringing him to the bare skin of her chest while he squirmed and niggled and cried his way into the world, streaked with the vernix of the world before. Regulus Black nursed at the breast with the cord still attached, placenta undelivered. Regulus Black was born without a midwife. In fact, the only being within Grimald Place at the birth of the second child of the House of Black, aside from his mother, of course, was a house elf, who busied himself scrubbing blood from the staircase and muttering his worries. Regulus Black was born without a midwife, because Walburga Black, daughter of Pollux Black and Irma Black Nay Crab, had become convinced that the woman who had tended to her growing belly was full of sinister intent, that, in the second half of her pregnancy, the foul witch began slipping her Angelica in teas and black cohosh and salves, whispering evils each time she leaned down, pinard to her ear, listening for the heartbeat of her blessed child, her little prince, her son that death forgot on the wrong side of the veil. It had started innocently enough, as so many things do, before Walburga had known she had fallen with child, though she had. It had started with a dream, a dream in the lonely and cold days that darkened early and lightened late in a time where Walburga was filled with an emptiness that seemed to gnaw at her without reprieve that filled her viscera with a heaviness and made tears come easily when she sat alone, rouging her lips with holly and powdering her high cheeks. A time where she drank away afternoons often and, bored with the simple effects of wine and brandy and fanciful liqueurs, she brewed potions with a bravery that was haughty and irreverent. A time where she shredded you and nightshade and they stained her skin of her hands with steria petals about the floor. It was here, too, she felt herself seeking pain, discomfort, fear, and most desperately of all, relief. Relief was an elusive thing in those long days, with lovely evenings at a brewer's bench, steamed wormwood and hemlock curling her hair, and foxglove bells ringing in her ears. Even her sudden enthusiasm for Orion's attentions in the dark and lofty master bedroom of the ancient house was but a symptom of something far more sinister if the passion flower wine was to be believed. This was, of course, far beyond the scope of Orion's interest, for he simply enjoyed the novelty of his hand directed to Walburga's pretty throat and the excitement of the ways she asked him to hurt her, body limp with skullcap and belladonna, desperate and hungry and nourished by nothing but the affirmation of survival. This dream was one that seemed to last ages, to stretch on in time, as if it were waking life, as if it were as real as her true born-and-die history. There was no fuzziness or unreality, no hints that would reveal the dream for what it was, a dream that, as the weeks wore on, she became convinced was, in fact, real. 
In this dream, Walburga Black found herself in the deep snow of an ancient and empty forest, trees of the great north precarious and densely scattered on the steepest edge of a great valley. A valley that seemed to be carved from the earth, reminders of what was once a fierce and fast river, one that left a scar. She was thankful for the high fur-lined snow boots and the thick fur cape that draped about her, her breath leaving her in steaming swaths, quickly disappearing in the frigid air as she headed down the escarpment, dragonhide gloves wrapped around the thick bark of scattered pines as she found her way between the trees. The only sound seemed to be the steady crunching of her footfalls, a sound that was softened, dampened, blurred by the thick snow that hung heavy on boughs and piled up between the trunks. The sun, weak though it was for the season, was high in the sky above the valley by the time she reached its floor, boots sinking into the deep drift with each step, the cold seeming to draw itself up about her thighs. The exposed skin of her cheeks burned with the wind that gusted up from the depths between the mountains, though it did not chill her. Beneath her fur cape, Wolberga felt the sweat dampening her shirt, pooling along her back. She walked on, her long dark hair falling about her face in the sharp cold of the wind at her heels, chasing her along the old riverbed and toward the steep wall of stone that formed the mountain, where time had cut away boulders and strewn them along the great expanses of rock that seemed to stretch up into the great pale blue of the winter sky. The climb up the cliff face was a difficult one, and while Burgess' fingers slipped and slid across weather-beaten ledges, her boots fighting for purchase on icy holds. Twice she fell, once landing hard enough to make her cry out, a sharp sound in the otherwise silent, snowy world. A sound that seemed to rattle around the valley below, magnified and mocking. It was after this fall, while Berga panting in the snow below, brow wet and shoulder smoldering with pain, that she first heard Cicera laugh. It was as though Cicera sat beside her, giggling gently in her ear, soft and beautiful, bright like citrus in summer. Walburga could nearly feel Cicera's braid fall across her aching shoulder, reminiscent of the way she used to roll and face her in the night, hands soft and gentle and warm. Laying in the snow, staring up at the pale blue sky and the weak sun of winter, Walburga could smell the lime of Cicera's perfume and the little gusts of breath just beneath her ear. She rose and struggled on, brow furrowed and scowling at the cold wind. Further up the rock face, Walburga rose to find a ledge and a split in the rock, half covered in a heavy drift of snow, a warm and gentle quiet seeming to seep from deep within the crevice. She slipped inside, the quiet settling about her. Snow falling from her shoulders and then the fur of her cape, her boots now crunched over dried sticks and leaves as she stepped into the dark beyond the entryway, hands reaching out to guide her along the stone wall of the cavern. Soft mosses, sheltered from the cold wind outside, met her, a gentle glow stirring to life beneath her searching hand. As she moved deeper into the cave, more and more of the mosses and lichens seemed to awaken, a gentle green glow filling the recesses of the cavern as she stirred the still air. Beneath her, luminescent flora ignited beneath her careful footfalls, snaking a small path between large masses of sticks and broken branches, covered with similar dark-loving plants that learned long ago how to create their own light. 
She walked on in the soft dark, warm enough now ensconced in a slip of the earth to take off her fur-lined cape and hang it alongside the path on one of the beams of wood that seemed to jut eerily and haphazardly into the narrow alleys between. That's it, beautiful. Cicero's voice came clearly and gently from beside her, just a bit further. Deeper still, Walburga went, following the strange glow of the lichen, the walls seeming to narrow and close around her again. It wasn't long before Walburga removed her dragonhide gloves to drag her bare fingers along the cave wall, feeling the soft leaves and tendrils of seeking roots, as well as the trickle of something wet behind it. Steps further, the sound of running water heralded the source, and the ground beneath her boots became softer still, the air growing warmer, damper, more humid. In time, Walburga emerged from the narrowed passage between the wet rock and into a second chamber, not as large as the first, this one glowed bright with the ferns and mosses and small plants, eerily glowing flowers and broad, heavy leaves. The sound of running water was loud and echoed around the steam that hovered along the floor of the cave, which Walburga soon realized was the glassy surface of a pool. At the very back of the stone cavern, water seemed to tumble down another schism of rock, flowing down over small egresses and into the pool below. Steam curled, warm and inviting, from the glassy water, and Walburga slid her boots and socks off, feet bare now on the glowing mosses, warm and bright, her sleeves rolled up over bare arms, heavy trousers tossed aside for the freedom and lightness of her underclothes. Another laugh came to her, seeming to echo from the cavern walls, painfully familiar, bright and bold and glorious as the woman it heralded a laugh Walburga had not heard in many long and lonely years. "'Took you long enough, darling,' came Fern's voice from the eddying steam over the water. Walburga narrowed her eyes and peered into the greenish glow. "'Fern?' she whispered, disbelieving. "'As I live and breathe,' Fern's voice was tight and catty and glorious, full of the beauty and wonder of her friend. Her laugh followed again, deep and throaty." Walburga leaned forward, eyes still searching, crouching down at the water's edge. She lay her palms flat on the rock and slipped her bare legs down over the edge of the pool and into the warm, swirling water. "'Come in, beautiful,' Cicero spoke softly, but with a shape to her words that sounded as if she were smiling, and Walburga leaned into the sound. It felt so hopeful, like so many years of pain, of loneliness, of the coldness of the world beyond were nothing.' Walburga slid herself down into the pool, her face dropping below the water, hair soaked and streaming around her, rising again to breathe, the steam in the soft glow of the lichen obscuring her view as the water ran rivulets down her cheeks. Walburga felt fingers slip between her own, a palm resting against hers, then the press of a familiar body at her side, and she turned to see Sisera, eyes crinkled with joy and mirth, laughter on the tip of her tongue and lips. Sisera, Walburga breathed, her feet flat on the warm stone of the pool, her shoulders just above the water line. Another body pressed against her side, arms wrapping around her in a firm hug, nose buried deep into the crook of her neck. Hello, darling, came Fern's honeyed voice. They stayed there a while, rocking her gently in the warm water between them, letting her cry, letting her cup their faces with her hands, letting her memorize their features again and again, 
letting Walburga remember them. Fern was younger than she'd been when death took her. She was freckled and joyful in a way that remembered an untroubled youth that spoke of a time before men and marriage, of isolation, solitude. She looked sun-kissed and fearless. Cicer was older, softer, golden, and Walburga realized with a heavy fear, still pregnant, belly large and swollen beneath the green glow of the water. Darling, Cicera started, her hand tucking the long strands of dark, wet hair behind Walburga's ear. Won't you bring him to the world for me? He shouldn't be here. He should have stayed. Fern leaned her head against Walburga's shoulder, arms draped loosely about her friend. Walburga looked at Cicera, her round cheeks and the softness of her eyes, steam curling about the three women, in the half-light, underground. Anything for you, my love. When Walburga awoke, Cicera's soft lips still traced the path of the moon and the stars across her belly and down her thighs, and she could still hear Fern laughing her joy into the dark. The steam seemed to linger in the cold of the bedchamber, the sound of running water loud and bright in her ears. Two drops of bright red blood marred the sheets between her legs that morning, and Walburga knew that within her sprang life anew, reinvited to awaken within the world. She cleared the potioner's bench in her brewery that afternoon, Cohosh and Artemisia back in their little glass bottles, pennyroyal and cottonroot bark in stasis under charms. She vanished all the sundry spills and spelled her cauldron so the cast iron felt slick and unaccustomed to her magic. By early evening, Creature caught sight of her rearranging a new row of freshly purchased ingredients Owl ordered from Old Sluggies that very same day. Hops and red raspberry leaf bookended a whole jar of rose hips, and stinging nettles hung whole and dried, suspended from the wooden ceiling. Oat straw and alfalfa found their homes next to yellow dock, while elderflowers came to rest where the belladonna once had. Creature knew then that his mistress was again expecting. Walburga, Lucretia sipped at her milky Earl Grey, you're not making much sense. How could this child be Cicero's? She replaced the teacup in its dainty saucer. She's dead, dear, for a long time now. Trust me, Lucretia, Walburga drew her bare feet up onto the velvet settee, tucking them beneath her. Cicero sent me her baby boy, the one she lost. She wrapped her hands around her belly, circling the small swell that had since appeared there. She was smiling in a faraway kind of way, tilting her head to one side, as if listening. Lucretia sighed deeply, looking her old and very dear friend over. For weeks now, Walburga had been, well, not herself. She had abandoned such formalities as the Maybon Soiree and the ladies' spring teas. She'd been restless when Lucretia saw her, unrefined and oddly human, biting her nails and fiddling with her hair, She'd seemed distracted and often spoke of their two lost friends, Fern and Cicera, as if they'd been together just yesterday. All of that was true, but the thing was, Walburga also seemed happy, happier than she'd been in years. She smiled and laughed easily, and the darkness that had always seemed to hang heavy on her features would melt away, and she'd talk about their old friends easily, with laughter and a light-hearted air. It was most unlike Walburga, but it was hard to find a reason to think it was a bad change. 
She even made a joke at Lucretia's own husband's expense, a man who'd gifted her with three beautiful children, two of whom were twins, and who doted on her lovingly and with great compassion. It had always been a soreness between the two of them, how Walburga had longed for that kind of love, and how unfair it was that Lucretia, of the four of them, was the only one to be blessed with it. Lucretia watched Walburga a moment longer, her worries falling away. How could her happiness be a bad thing? And a child, too. Perhaps Walburga was healing. Perhaps this was good. I wouldn't, darling. Walburga's voice was clear and caring over the otherwise silent house. I can feel him kicking. Come, put your hand on my belly. There was a pause before a soft laugh. Walburga's trickled down the hall to where Creature was rubbing beeswax and oil along the stretch of carved wooden siding. Feel it? Walburga asked, voice still full of the soft laughter. Your son is strong, my love, like you. Come, draw your runes on me. Creature apparated away to the brewery by the kitchen, reaching up to stir the simmering potion within an ancient cast-iron cauldron, hung suspended over an open flame by three large iron rods. "'Mistress is talking to no one and nothing again,' he muttered, removing the long stem of birch he'd been using to agitate the brew and turning to grab a glass bottle from the bench behind him, running wild with magic she does not know or understand.' Mistress will not listen to Creature, he groused, dipping the bottle into the dark amber liquid that smoked softly, adding a valerian root before corking it and slipping it into his pocket. Mistress will need sedating again tonight. The elf turned and apparated back to the hallway, stopping just beyond the archway that led into the green room, glass file in hand. Walburga was laughing still, louder now, it was an uncontrolled and gurgling laugh, one that seemed to extend on and on, a rhythmic, disconnected. In summer, Walburga took to painting. She would dress in her long white robe, dark hair loose and cascading down her shoulders in endless, untamed waves, body light with a childlike joy. At first, Creature was relieved to see her active again, creative. She had new energy, a desire for food and drink, and she seemed to glow and spoke often of her plans to make sure her child grew up with the arts. She spoke with a lust for the future that, at first, felt genuine, hopeful. She instructed Creature to set up an easel and canvas in the green room, facing the window that looked out into the garden below. She then primed it with long, sweeping strokes and spent hours tracing brushes across renditions of thick, fluffy clouds in the pale blue sky, dabbing greens and yellows and splashes of pinks in the landscape below. She'd take a palette knife and scrape hard lines through the paint, dabbing globs of color across imagined hillsides and valleys. Once, or sometimes twice a day for those first few days, she'd get so frustrated with the canvas and the colors and the limitations of the painted world, she'd throw the whole canvas with red, scream at it, cry, vanish it to the ethers. Then she'd draw up her long white sleeves, now covered in splashes of oil paints and red and golds and purples, and start again, calling for Creature to bring her strawberries and cream and puddings and roast duck confit. Meals she'd take standing, staring at her canvas, talking all the while. At first, Walburga spoke to the child that grew within her. 
She would tell him stories of the old gods, tales of battle and infamy. She told him secrets about wizards and witches that had graced their bloodline, powerful and irreverent, bold, often foolhardy. She spent two whole hours reciting every line from an epic poem penned by a village squib in 1341 that chronicled the tale of Delphinius Black, a man who had taken magical France at his heel. After the grand finale of this tale, which ended in Delphinius drowned and hanged by a second cousin, Auriga Black, jealous of his boyhood rival, Walburga peppered the room with her laughter. Gleefully, she recounted how Auriga had lived in infamy in his own right, having garnered support for a little-known initiative that endeavored to call the non-magical from the continent. The Black Plague, as history came to call it, was never anything but eponymous. That night, Creature placed a mug of steaming hops and skullcap in her paint-covered hand, and Walburga, fading with the setting sun, whispered another of her childhood tales to the boy within her. She spoke slowly, words slurred by cheeks that felt full of cotton and which felt difficult to find in the tired eddy of her thoughts. Walburga told the tale of the three brothers, her head lolling back on the plush cushions that lined the settee, the room spinning and her eyes closing. She told the tale and she laughed, thickly this time, mugs slipping from clumsy fingers, licking her lips as she drooled. Boy of mine, she breathed, Death has already found you, and he won't come looking again. You're safe. On the second day Walburga painted, Creature listened from the hall as his mistress awoke early and ate breakfast before the sun, speaking long and loving words in rhyming couplets and soliloquous sonnets through the growing morning. These tales were far less familiar now, and words seemed to trail off into ideas that leapt wildly from place to place, person to person, consonant to consonant, an endless stream of syllables that rang out in a tireless volley, bright and brilliant and unbridled. Walburga spoke of the Percherons at Baudelaire and the way Cicero would have loved them, big black beasts, the way they could have braided their manes and taken them bathing in summer, bareback, with their legs bare, catching the bracken water, blissful and blessed, heavenly, thy kingdom come. By the time Creature had returned from fetching a fourth round of his carefully and deliberately brewed tea, Walburga was standing before the family tapestry, golden fire in hand, staring hard and wide-eyed at the faces before her. She was panting hard, muttering to herself, letting the little fire catch the golden threads, burning away the connections there. She severed the ties to Lucretia Pruitt, nay, Black, and her twins, Gideon and Fabian, before Creature wrestled her away from the smoking and singed ancestral peace. An entire hole was left where Lucretia's daughter, Molly, should have been. It was on this night, Walburga pacing the room, paintbrush in hand, streaks of yellow and gold through her unkempt hair, that Creature stole and hid the witch's wand. He pulled up a floorboard in the kitchen corner cupboard where he slept, a dark and most habitable place for a house elf, and one that was not well accustomed to being visited by the masters and mistresses of the home. He placed the eleven and three-quarter inches of worn and dutiful ash in the dusty and empty space beneath. It was a difficult act to do, and Creature spent many hours clawing his skin and pulling his ears for the infraction, but deep within, he knew it was the only way. Walburga's wand was exceptionally powerful. 
It was an ancient bit of wood, that wand, passed between witches from the ninth century. Elves that had served the ancient and most noble house of black before creature had seen the wand handed from mother to daughter and had watched the way magic had pooled and brewed and grown glorious in its wake. It had always been rumored that the core of this particular ash wand was the hair of a vila. Not any vila, in fact, but the vila that had sparked the obsessive love of Sajida Black, first of her name. Sajda had, twice spurned by the beautiful woman, retaliated in the most brutal of ways, as those who are unaccustomed to rejection often do. She hunted her beloved Vila across the forests of what would become northern France, spending 300 days and 300 nights tracking her and, when close enough, letting arrows at her back, sinking little razors of steel into the woman's exhausted flesh. When Sajida had caught her, blood running rivers down glowing skin from where arrows had lodged, Sajida Black grabbed her love by a fistful of her hair, drawing a knife across her neck. Sajida had returned to her family home, carrying the head of the vila she had loved. Her body, powerfully magical as it was, was carved and quartered, harvested for what strength it could provide to curses, to potions, to amulets, and bitter wines. The House of Black garnished itself in the blood and skin and hair and nails and bones of this vila, and for many years the Blacks would prosper for this sacrifice. Sajida, fresh from her victory, returned with not just the gold and the glory that came from the killing, but with a wand as well. While she never confirmed it, over the years it was retold that Sajida had taken seven of the vila's long black hairs for herself, braided them, and thread them into the shaft of one of her ash arrows, sealing the wood again with the blood of her beloved. The ash wand, born of this cruelty, had birthed magic that was unwieldy, powerful, and dangerous, and the women of the House of Black had not shied from it. They chose Sajida's wand when they came of age, and their magic wound itself into their grandmother's inhumanity. It was with this history in mind that Creature hid the wand, afraid now of what magic may come into being, his mistress so unhinged, so similarly tortured by the misadventures of love, so adept at starting fires. By the fourth sleepless night, Walburga grew expansive and began painting the walls. She drew endless scenes of a forest and a river valley and the strangest green and yellow hue that covered large sections of black paint that Walburga had smeared on with her hands, fingertips soiled with the oil pigments, chattering away all the while about the theater of the dead. About orgies on the steps of the Colosseum in Rome, and the way prayer worked, and how Gringotts held the secret to eternal life down in the vault, somewhere with dragons. She drew runes from floor to ceiling and carved them ceaselessly into the soft wood of the furniture, the floor, and the paneling of the walls. The ash wand, however, remained hidden. Walburga's second birth was so very different from the first. It was reparative and liberating, thoughtless and emancipated. Years later, in letters of apology to Lucretia that went unanswered, Walburga would describe it as a time of uncontained ecstasy. It was a moment where she had defied death, where she had brought forth into the world a being that had been still once before, and in that she had felt an illicit glory. She wasn't awoken in the night with startling waves of pain and fear. 
No, this time it started in the early hours of the morning, the ghost of Cicero's hand on her belly, caressing her skin, words of gentleness and favor in her ear as she awoke. The pain she felt was slow and crescentic and purposeful. Rather than drowning in each successive wave pulled under by the current, Olberga felt as though she were floating on the rising of the tide, carried forward by it. On the morning of September 2nd, Creature found the Queen of the House of Black in the drawing room, stripped naked, squatting and gripping the back of a plush-winged armchair, muttering to Sisera as if she stood beside her, prophesying about the child that would come. A child of nobility and strength, a child of royal character, proud and dutiful, a martyr, the prince who survived death, hallowed be thy name. She laughed into the end of her words and dug her fingers into the stringy, bloody discharge that slowly dripped onto the ornate rug. With it, she drew nonsensical sigils over and over again in concentric circles around her, only pausing when the contraction made it impossible to carry on. Creature watched unobtrusively from just beyond the walnut molding, eyes watery and heart-pounding, wringing his long fingers— it wasn't without precedent that an elf would attend births at the hems of midwives, or even in the days long ago when the cunning folk with birth knowledge were few and far between, when the ladies of the house relied on their dear and dutiful elves. But that was long ago, and even in such times, those who experienced such unreality did not often survive long. With the next contraction, there was a pop and a torrent of fluid, followed quickly by a howl of effort. Interrupted in her litany of disjointed recitations, a slick and warm body slid onto the floor beneath her, slowly unfurling its tightly held limbs. Walberga pulled the sheets of slippery amnion from his wrinkled face and unwrapped him from his overlong cord, thick and pulsing. She curled forward around the infant before her, streaked with vernix, eyes still closed to the world. She clutched him to her chest without reprieve, with hungry eyes and greedy hands, and a distinct nescience of the world around her. She lifted him, hands wrapped about the newness of his flesh, lifting his once dusky body, quickly pinking to her naked chest, nose to his tiny patch of hair, breathing deeply, greedily. When the cord went white and limp, and he was pink and wriggling, Walberga took the sinewy flesh between her teeth, and chewed through it, dark blood staining her chin as it dripped down onto her breasts where he fed, unconcerned with his severance from her world. Creature used his mistress's distraction and consuming enthrallment to tie the ragged cord with a bit of spun linen. Over his shoulder, Walberga whispered breathlessly about their son's destiny and strength, rocking him, hands bloodied and skin streaked with the humanness of her labor. Beyond the limits of Walberga's perception, Creature gently lifted the placenta that had slid out onto the floor amid a trickle of blood and dark clots, nearly unnoticed by Walberga, save for a twinge of discomfort and the faintest of grunts, and placed it into a wooden basin. It was a blessing and a curse that Orion and Sirius both summered in France. Orion, deeply involved in the anti-Muggle legislation that was up for debate in the French, Belgian, and Swiss ministries, spent months moving deftly between meetings, hearings, summits, and gentlemen's galas, disappearing and reappearing about the continent. It was rare that he saw his son, rare even that he thought of the boy, nor did he spare many moments to imagine his pregnant wife back in England. 
It was custom for the men of the time to give their wives this time in seclusion, tended to by midwives or other such women who trained in the most human of matters. Sirius, toddler that he was, spent most of the summer clutching at the skirts of his governess, Gwendolyn, who towed him around the grounds of Baudelaire during her chores, monologuing at the dark-haired boy in her native French, occasionally passing him a stolen bit of spinach from the garden or the soft petals of a pansy, which he'd immediately bring to his mouth and eat, eyes wide and imploring. It used to make her laugh to watch him, legs and feet unsteady as he ran, gate wide, stumbling throughout the sweet peas and tripping amongst the lettuce. He'd be covered in mud, face screwed up and threatening to cry, when she'd offer him a snip of chive or, on one memorable occasion, a wedge of a lemon. Sirius's great surprise with the complexity of the world always seemed to win over his desire for a tantrum, and he'd laugh easily and almost never gave in to tears. On one memorable afternoon, she took him to the stables, lifting him up to greet the giant black horses who pushed their velvety noses against his full cheeks, gusting hot breaths in his silken hair and snorting at his squealing laughs. She let him twist his small and uncoordinated fingers into their long, thick manes, and he delighted in how they would swing their great necks around to investigate him, forelocks long over their dark, inquiring eyes. In time, he gained the confidence to run right up to them on his own, Gwendolyn watching with a shrewd eye as he'd hug their massive forelegs, arm wrapped up in their feathers, fingers catching on chestnuts. Sirius was late to speak. Anyone who knew him later in life would never have believed this, given Sirius's great tendency to be loud, brash, unrestrained, and almost incessant in his commentary. It was true, however, that young Sirius Black did not utter a single word until that very same summer. Perhaps it was the switch from English to French that delayed him. Perhaps it was the many and ever-changing women who cared for him, some of whom encouraged his development, while others did not. Perhaps it was just the way things were meant to be, as not all children take to language early. But no matter the reason, Sirius Black did indeed speak that summer. The house mastiff, Albert, as he was known, was an old dog by the time he met Sirius. But an immediate bond seemed to spring up between them. Albert, aged and arthritic as he was, found new energy and enthusiasm for life that summer, tottering around after young Sirius, snacking in the garden and laying on top of the hot patio stones in the summer sun for afternoon naps, Sirius wrapped around his great wrinkled neck, head buried in the folds of his great jowls. Sirius began sneaking food for Albert during meals that August. He'd push peas and carrots and all sorts of steaks from his plate to the floor, and Albert would spend all the while at his feet, scouring up bits of human food, of which he'd spent long years dreaming and scheming how to get. Despite Gwendolyn's protests, eventually Albert simply would keep his head in Sirius's lap as he ate, and they'd share each meal like that, bite for bite. One afternoon, hot and windy for late August, Gwendolyn was harvesting artichokes a few beds down from where Sirius had been pulling up carrots and feeding them to the old dog, who had smeared drool all across Sirius's hair and down his back from where he had been stationed, hovering above him, as now was custom. When Gwendolyn looked up and caught sight of this scene, she stood a long moment, hands on her hips, back sore and fingers aching. 
It was just then, unprompted by anything, Sirius reached up and grabbed around Albert's neck, practically shouting bear directly into the poor hound's ear. It didn't matter, of course, since the old dog had been deaf for many years already, but it startled Gwendolyn so badly she dropped her basket of artichokes, accidentally vanishing them all. After that moment, Sirius called for Bear every day, babbling at him constantly in an uninterrupted stream. He'd show him little rocks and fallen twigs, any manner of scattered detritus that sparked his attention. Anytime Sirius misstepped and fell, he'd call for Bear, who lumbered to his side, jowls quivering and nose nudging insistently. He'd chatter to Bear at every meal, with every bite of his food the dog took. He'd even begun to call for Bear at night to sleep. In fact, Sirius screamed for Bear until Gwendolyn finally relented and allowed the Mastiff into Sirius's room, where he happily curled up next to his crib, snoring all the night long. Gwendolyn often wondered how long passed the young master's departure from the sweeping grounds of Baudelaire and the joyfulness of the summer garden did he call for the great hound, and how long, until he, young as he was, learned that Bear could not, in fact, hear him. Later in life, Sirius would not recall these memories, plain and peaceful as they were, young as he was. And they were eclipsed, rather quickly, by returning to a home in which Creature hurried him from room to room, hushed him and his new talents constantly, and no governess returned to mind him in the garden or accompany him on adventures through sun-drenched grounds. He spent long and lonely days in his room, playing with colored wooden blocks, building towers and knocking them down, eating lunches and dinners with Creature hurriedly spooning him foods and deftly vanishing anything he spilled. He spoke less and less, closed up in his room, and before long, he became reaccustomed to silence. Sometimes, in the quiet, there would be the sounds of screaming and singing and crying from the rooms beyond, ever so accompanied by the banging and scraping of furniture or the breaking of glass. Sirius, days before his second birthday, listening at the gap below his bedroom door, heard new and unfamiliar footsteps. This was after a particularly long and drawn-out day of shouting and screaming from the end of the hall. "'She will need treatment, Mr. Black,' came the stuttering and soft voice of the stranger. "'Treatment I cannot administer here. She'll have to be admitted, I'm afraid.' "'This is such an embarrassment.' The deeper voice was familiar to Sirius, and so too was the way he spoke over the other man. "'I'll pay triple your rates if you see her here, quadruple even.' There was a short pause before he continued. I'll need this kept quiet, Fortescue. It's not so simple. This isn't just dragon pox or a vanishing hex, the first man stammered. Make it that simple, the second interrupted. His voice sharp and clipped with a practiced kind of finality that did not encourage argument. The voices faded as they continued down the hall, creatures' bare feet shuffling behind them, muttering imperceptibly soft. Sirius awoke one night to laughter. It was loud and full and fascinating to Sirius, young as he was, and he was quick to climb out of his crib and to his door. Despite his young age, Sirius managed to turn the handle and swung it open quietly on well-oiled hinges, leading into the dark hall beyond. Walking slowly, footsteps muffled on the runner, Sirius moved toward the light that seemed to be flooding from one of the rooms. The laughter had died back, and now Sirius could hear soft singing coming from the room, melodic and beautiful, 
It sounded kind and caring and loving, like something he'd always yearned to hear. Little baby in the dark house, don't fall asleep. Little baby in the dark house, from the old gods I'll keep. Little baby in the dark house, don't fall asleep. Sirius stood at the edge of the doorframe, light spilling into the hall before him, listening to the soft voice and gentle humming. Eat, little baby, the long dark is here. Don't sleep, little baby, there's shadows to fear. Sirius slid down the side of the wall silently, knees to his chest, listening. There was laughter again, soft and bubbling between the bounce of humming. He could hear her moving about the room, occasionally watching her shadow on the far wall of the hall as it bounced and danced as she moved. Eventually, the singing and laughter faded into conversation. He's beautiful, my love, the voice started as if mid-conversation. Look at his little tuft of black hair. Perhaps that's from my side, not yours, not yours. Little cooing sounds followed. Yes, I convinced him to let me choose Regulus. A muffled baby's cry startled Sirius, who peeked around the edge of the doorframe. Regulus, Regulus, Regulus Arcturus. It means little prince, isn't that just so fitting? The woman was sitting now, leaning back on the old settee, a bundle of blankets across her chest, turned to her right, nodding along, as if speaking to someone. Little prince snatched from death, she crooned into the bundle in her arms, before turning sharply to her right again. Cicero, don't be cruel. Why would I want to hurt him? It's others who want to hurt him, hurt him, hurt him. She rocked the bundle in her arms a bit faster, bouncing it. The muffled cry came again. You're upsetting him. She stood again and began pacing, shushing the child. Everyone wants to hurt him, hurt him. It's because he's so precious. Only I want to protect him. Her voice sounded strained now, and Sirius ducked back behind the edge of the door, afraid he would be seen. Everyone is against us, she continued, speaking faster now and louder. Against us! Those healers and their treatments, they're the ones who can't be trusted. They're the ones who want to hurt him, hurt him, hurt him. The baby was crying again, and she had stopped trying to soothe him with shushing noises. They plot and plan against us, us, us. Even now, if I sleep, they will come and take him. Her voice was high and tight, and the crying was growing louder and more strained. The shadow of the woman on the wall across from Sirius was rocking and bouncing the bundle in her arms frantically, much too fast and with far too much force. Sirius shuffled back from the edge of the door, frightened by this change in tone, and felt himself bump up against something. He turned and saw Creature, who was similarly turned, watching the shadow on the wall. Sirius was apparated away back to his bedroom before he knew what had happened, Creature disappearing again in a snap. From down the hall, he could hear screaming. The next morning, Sirius woke to find a crib in his bedroom. He stood, creeping closer, unsure of what to make of these new changes. Within the crib, swaddled in the same blankets from the night before, was a baby. Sirius leaned forward, face pressed to the bars, looking down at the small being, who moved slowly and without purpose in his sleep. Sirius reached forward and stuck a finger into the palm of the tiny hand that had escaped covering. To his great surprise, the baby grasped his finger, yawning and stretching and opening his eyes to regard Sirius. They stared at each other for a long moment before the newcomer opened his mouth wide, yawned, and then immediately began to cry. 
Sirius stepped back, unsure what to do, just as the small pop behind him alerted him to Creature's presence. Creature pushed Sirius aside and lifted the baby, blankets and all, to his shoulder, which was covered in a soft yellow towel. Breakfast, young master, Creature said in his rough, deep voice, producing a bottle and holding it for the infant while he drank, Sirius watching all the while, eyes wide in surprise, then brow furrowed in confusion. A governess and a wet nurse both arrived the following Wednesday, and Sirius's life continued as before, this time, however, accompanied by his new brother. In time, it was explained to him that the woman who lay on the bed most days, glassy-eyed and staring, drooling and whispering untruths, was his mother. The man with the deep voice and the brusque manner, that was his father. And so, his governess taught him such things, and life, as it were, continued on. According to Harrows and Tindley, the term unforgivable curse was first documented in the Mugwump Declaration of 1215, the same year as the Magna Carta, though its definition and revisitation in the legal underpinnings of wizarding society would not be further described for another 500 years. In 1707, the first minister for magic was elected. Ulrich Gamp founded the position following decades of chaotic violence between warring feudalistic factions, his victory being predicated on his promise to bring law and order to wizarding society and to hold accountable various families for their ruthlessness. In fact, Gamp's first order of business on his very first day in office, and after he had his opponent publicly executed, was to establish the Viciousness Decree. This doctrine later formed much of the original Wizarding Legal Code, the Mugwump Order of Values, as well as built the foundation for the Department of Magical Law Enforcement, which was ratified in 1839. Gamp was succeeded by Damocles Rowell, who, despite warnings from both the Icelandic Magical Society and the Norse Protective Union, used the precedent of the Viciousness Decree to justify the opening of a government-sanctioned institution for the provision of punishment, and, particularly, which could impose the same effect as the severe, vicious, and life-threatening curses without any individual taking responsibility for such actions. There was much debate among ministry wizards at the time what spells would constitute as unforgivable actions, and though the contemporary punitive system was but a farmhouse in the south of Wales with several resident ghouls, the assumption was that, given access to greater infrastructure, punishment allocated by the ministry should be the maximum possible. Azkaban Fortress was opened in 1718 after Rao commissioned the capture and enslavement of five Dementors by William James Rhodes, who had first encountered the fabled creatures on an expedition along the Blue Nile in 1703. Rhodes and Rao were childhood friends who had spent their boyhood years hunting hinky punks across England and Wales, and while Rao was summarily censured by the International Confederation of Wizards for his characteristic brutality towards non-magical beings, Rhodes disappeared from Wizarding Britain's history to hone his skills abroad. It is well described that Rhodes and his descendants became critical in the continued provision of Dementors for use by Wizarding Britain's government, and while their contracts with the ministry were well known, rumors persisted for years that they similarly provided private services to those with enough gold to make this transgression forgivable. In fact, Aurors were called to the Crab Estate in 1902 after several reports of repeated Dementor attacks, culminating in the loss of Tanner Crab's soul and his removal to St. Mungo's Hospital. 
While Tanner was unable to respond to the accusation that the Dementors had been acquired to assist in torturing the local village and its Muggle population himself, ample anecdotal evidence was supplied and corroborated by the seizure of more than 32 of the formidable creatures from the home. The Unforgivables, in contrast, were only specifically described in further legislation after the creation of the Council for Magical Law in 1923, an oversight body that functioned to nitpick about such things as the legal code and acceptable terms of punishment. Robust debate between Chief Warlock Artemis Pye and Honorable Chair Glenda Flume persisted for 24 years, and it was only after the untimely death of Flume that Pye was able to, in honor of her memory, add the imperious curse to the list of proposed unforgivables. Pye's arguments had always centered on the belief that only one, maximum two, crimes could be held to the highest standard of punishment, that is, life imprisonment in Azkaban, and any more than this would be irrational, difficult to remember, impossible to enforce, and tiresome for all involved. Flume, once a professor at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry, now turned policymaker, had a list of 22,948 specific spells and curses that she deemed suitable for unforgivable classification. She had vehemently argued that all magic that created grievous bodily harm, emotional, psychological, or physical distress, all rights that ease the process of transactional marriage and childbearing, entrail expelling, and forced merrymaking were unethical to impose on another, and that conflict de-escalation would suffice in all proposed scenarios. Because of this decades-long tedium and the lack of any perceived point in debating it further, the Ministry and inhabitants of Wizarding Britain had become accustomed to and well acquainted with the legal concept that three curses were to never be uttered, the Imperius Curse, the Cruciatus Curse, and Avada Kedavra. Namely, the general public was summarily aware that controlling someone, torturing them, and killing them were actions to be avoided. In practice, the Department for Magical Law Enforcement was only able to enforce the unforgivable clause of the Punitive Act of 1947 when the spell was observed directly, the effects clearly documented, and seven witnesses were available to testify to the nature and context of said magic. In the time before the First Wizarding War, the unforgivable clause of the Punitive Act was only brought to trial twice. In the second of these instances, however, the case was dismissed on a technicality. The spell in question, Avada Kedavra, was, in fact, performed on Hester Macmillan's house elf, which, after Grogan Stump's decree on the ratification of beast and being in 1818, did not qualify as a true being, and the offense was, most justly, unpunishable. Practically, this poorly enacted, poorly described, illogical and inefficient system meant that some families, and this certainly meant the Blacks of London in particular, viewed the unforgivable curses with far less trepidation than many others. It was common in the halls of Grimald Place for the Cruciatus Curse to serve as motivation for elves, children, and casual day visitors alike. The Imperious Curse, while generally frowned upon in amicable social settings, was a most effective means of political action and intrigue, and Arcturus Black I was well known for his propensity to Imperious voters on their way to ballot boxes. He was so well practiced in this particular curse that, when the Department of Magical Law Enforcement required extensive security during prisoner transport between ministry hearings in London and the treacherous isles of the North Sea, Arcturus Black was often called upon for his executive expertise. 
Walburga Black was first cursed with Crucio by her mother, Irma Black, nay a crab, when she was seven years old. She was first placed under the Imperious Curse by her cousin two summers later. For Walburga and Cygnus and Arcturus and Tuella and Lucretia and Orion, and for all of their ancestors of many names, early exposure to this specific magic was a point of pride. It meant that 14-year-old Walburga was accustomed to shaking off the Imperious, and Crucio, while Crucio hardly felt like a wasp's feeble sting. In the modern era, and as Walburga grew into motherhood in her own right, this particular form of proactive parenting began to fall out of practice. In the social circles of the day, mothers fawned over the preciousness of their precocious children, and trials by fire were thought of a brutalism best left to the past. Walburga was of two minds in the raising of her two children, though she often simply nodded along and agreed with whomever spoke on the topic over witches' high tea. In her private life, Walburga hardly excused herself from disciplining young Sirius Orion Black. The child was, by all accounts, pugnacious and impertinent. He spilled soup across his formal robes and ripped the knees of his trousers playing in the far field. He laughed loudly and with an open mouth at meals, and serious, spoiled child that he was, asked for bedtime stories and once a late-night snack. In this, Walburga did not restrain herself from correcting the child. A soft eldest boy was the ruin of any family, and Sirius Orion Black would be no different. Her work was to hone and carve the sniveling fool into someone that would swear blood oaths and build their name for generations. To him their legacy would fall, and for that Walburga did not pretend that life nor magic would not be cruel. As for her younger child, Walburga felt no desire for such rigid cruelty. Regulus Arcturus Black was a child she held close to her chest and coveted in ways that made her fearful of his every misstep, protective and overbearing. Regulus was a child that needed bedtime stories to distract from the nightmares that came across the veil, and a boy that cried for every bump and bruise, who called for his mother with big sobs and high-reaching arms, and who she brought to her readily and greedily. Regulus was her little prince, her blessed child, her gift from her love, a penance for her absence. He was never destined for anything but to tend to the emptiness in his mother's heart, and for that, how could she ever be expected to punish him? It was with a great disappointment that, in the storm of her arrival, Walburga Black discovered that her son, her eldest, child of her blood and wound of her flesh, was fourteen years old and so inept that a simple spell could hold him prisoner. It made her hate him all the more. And they get a snowball microphone, yeah. and they, like, go all out on the tech. Or they go in their Ring. closet to, like, dampen noise. We are, like, put stockings over the mic, and mm-hmm. we don't do any of that. Mm-hmm. We're really low budget. <laughs> I think we're, like, beyond low budget. We're, like, low effort. <laughs> low effort, low Yeah, budget. we're, like, we're, like, very lazy. Sometimes I even fuck up a word, and I just keep reading. Because, you know what, if you can't handle me fucking up one word... In this hour and 45 minutes, then honestly, just listen to something else. <laughs> like, 
Sometimes I don't think people realize how long it takes me to read a single chapter out loud because I have to stop every other sentence because yeah. I fuck up my words. Yeah. Well, it depends. It depends on the chapter. Yeah. Like, when we first started, I thought we were a lot worse at it. Mm. Although there are some chapters that just, like, either you suck at reading or I suck at reading. Yeah. Um, but I think it helps that we're reading our own writing. Yeah. So I, I find it really easy to just, like... That's true, actually, because I know when you've written something and the tone changes in my chapter, and then I suddenly am struggling to read it. Because, yeah. like... Because your brain yeah. automatically fills in, like, what you would have said. Yeah. Basically. Mm. So I find it pretty easy to read my own writing. If I had to do it to somebody else's writing, I think I would struggle a lot more. Yeah. yeah. Also, I'm worried about commas. <laughs> yeah, you are. Because, <laughs> I, like, I think my brain basically turns off when I'm reading. Mm. So, like, if I see a comma, I will pause. If I don't see a comma, I will not pause. So then, like, if it was supposed to be a pause and it wasn't, then it just... You're just flying up. right past. It's like, snowballing into the next part of the sentence, and then I can't breathe. <laughs> <laughs> so. You just run out of oxygen. Yeah, well, yeah. You're just getting, like, hypoxic reading. <laughs> yeah, and then, yeah, then yeah. I gotta stop. Yeah. But, yeah. That's super funny. We're, we're really low budget. Yeah. We barely have even a routine. Oh, we there's no routine. <laughs> what are you nuts? <laughs> we have two, three rooms in different places that we sometimes record in. Mm-hmm. Okay, I didn't realize you had started the discussion before. Oh, I was like venting <laughs> about people can deal with my mistakes. So um, <laughs> we should start the actual discussion. I. I love Holberga. We're just going to revisit that whole thing because I feel like it makes me a terrible person (laughs) to love her so incredibly. Why does it make you a terrible person? Because she's a terrible parent. She's so abusive. Why do you love her? She's relatable. Why? I don't know how to answer that question. Because you find every lesbian character relatable no i feel like she's exactly who i would have turned into if i had kids do you honestly think that yeah like you would beat and torture your children yeah which is probably why i shouldn't have my kids like i shouldn't have kids yeah that's a pretty good reason Mm -hmm. i don't think that you would be that i mean i feel like most people would seek help before they got yeah. to that point. Well, that's the thing. I It's not that I would do that. I think I would think about doing that, and that would fuck me up enough. That's probably pretty common. That people think about, like, you know, how frustrated and angry they are at their children, mm. especially if their children, like, act out in any way. Mm. Or they have a lot of psychosocial stress. Yeah. I think that's, yeah. It's It just depends on, like, what you how you act. Mm. But, yeah. Yeah. Why do you think it makes you a bad person? To like her. Because the whole, the whole point of that story you just mm. told me now is that you chose not to have children yeah. because you realized that about yourself. Does mm. that make you a bad person? No. So then why does liking her and relating her make you feel like a bad person? Because I feel like I understand why she does what she does. It, and and under- she does horrible things. Yeah, but understanding someone mm. and like their pain and frustration and mm. why they act the way they act doesn't make you a bad person. Mm makes you empathetic i guess so okay 
<laughs> I mean, I obviously could clearly understand it because I mm. wrote it. Yeah. <laughs> like, I was like, yeah, this makes sense. Does that make me a bad person? No. So then why would you call yourself a bad person? Yeah, but you also didn't write Wahlburga because you related to Wahlburga. Inherently, I do. I relate to that whole storyline. Mm. This is super understandable. Mm. I feel like it is an easily explained reality. Mm. I also chose not to have children because I don't think I would be a good parent. I would mm. hate them. Yeah. And resent them. Therefore, I would be a bad parent. So I chose... Mm. That doesn't make me a bad person. No, no. I wasn't saying that. Yeah. Mm. But then why do you feel guilty about identifying with her? I just do. I don't know if there's a reason. Okay. And if there is, I don't know what it is yet. <laughs> do you think you'll ever know? I don't know. I haven't gone to therapy enough about it. <laughs> we'll More things to add to the list <laughs> for the therapist. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no kidding. Either way, I love her world building. Yeah, it was fun to write. Mm. I just like explaining the whole like background. I think yeah. we do that constantly with everything. Yeah, so. absolutely. It makes it so much more interesting. Yeah. I think it explains the black family dynamics so much more intensely and their role in wizarding history. I also think it's a nice way to start thinking about Regulus. Yes. Yes, and the weird cognitive dissonance that Wahlberger has between her two kids. Yeah, also super common. We were talking about mm. this the other day. Yeah. Because both of us had a parent who treated, like, we are one of two siblings, mm. and they are, both of our parents, both of our moms, treated the one sibling very differently from the other, yeah. and has a clear cognitive dissonance about it. Yeah, totally. And I think it's extremely common. Mm. I Yeah. I think it's very difficult for a parent to treat two individuals in their family that they see every day yeah. identically. Yeah, totally. And not develop discordant feelings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I just think it's part of being a human. Yeah. And she's just obviously a very extreme example of that. Also because I decided to like throw mental illness in the mix mm-hmm. and like... You know, a sort of severe mental illness. Yeah. Not just depression or anxiety, but, like, obvious disconnect from reality. Mm Mm-mm. Well, I don't know. I say obvious. Do you think it was obvious? Yeah. Hugely. Okay. Again, because I sometimes forget the public discourse on what psychosis is, on what mania is, is very different from the reality, oftentimes. Mm -hmm. Um, And we've talked about this a lot recently, because we've spent a lot of time talking about um, depictions of mental illness in, in media, mm-hmm. um, particularly movies, and how the general public has a very misinformed platform mm-hmm. about mental illness, yeah. especially severe mental illness. Mm-hmm. I, I think the public is very well informed more recently about depression and anxiety. Mm, PTSD. Yeah, but, but even OCD is very poorly under... Uh, understood and and represented in media Mm -hmm. um a lot of people still use that as like a very colloquial description which Mm -hmm. is like it it isn't it's like a a spectrum of illness that can be mild to severe yeah like liking your office organized is not the same as having ocd yeah exactly Mm -hmm. yeah no completely um yeah and but i i think for many many years and i don't know if it's getting better recently not really in my understanding mm. of like media 
the the concept of psychosis. People mm-hmm. just have a very poor understanding of of what psychosis is. Yeah. Well, we, I mean, we were talking about this over the last couple of weeks, um, in terms of um, horror movies, mm-hmm. and the the psychiatric angle on horror movies, and how that's like so often used as a way to like demonize and demonize people with severe mental illness yeah and i it's one of my biggest fucking pet peeves Mm -hmm. actually um and i wonder like i hope people don't read our story as trying to have Wilberga fall into that trope Mm -hmm. either because like i i will say it explicitly the vast majority of people with psychosis and with severe mental illness are non-violent they are very much a lot of their um like discomfort and mm-hmm. distress is is projected inwardly yeah, inwardly totally and that you know correlates to um very high risk of suicide if yeah. you're schizophrenic totally. for example whereas the likelihood of homicide is extremely low mm-hmm. whereas if you looked at the way the media portrays it the, yeah. the media would have you believe that people with severe psychosis and who are disconnected from yeah. reality are inherently dangerous totally and inherently violent yeah. Whereas, like, this clearly shows, like, when she's, like, having this psychotic episode, she is, she's actually, like, um, how would you say? Like, A, she's completely non-violent, right? She's, mm-hmm. like, really loving her paint. She's more violent when she's a-psychotic. Well, that's what I was gonna yeah. say, you know? Like, when she's, like, feeling, um, yeah, a-psychotic, or what would you say? Like, her, like, baseline personality outside of her mental illness. Mm-hmm. Like, she's making totally cognizant choices to be a violent person. Yes. Rather yes. than, like, it being a symptom of her mental illness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, I kind of modeled her behavior after a patient I've had, actually, um, where in any sort of, any other day and time, you would hear something like a woman who is in the midst of a, a, a psychotic episode having an infant in labor... Mm. Um, you would be worried about the risk to the child, right? Yeah. So that's sort of a, just medical legally, you would have to be worried about the risk, right? Because you have to evaluate that person's confidence mm. and ability, you yeah. know, and, and the way that they're interacting, what their psychosis looks like. Mm. Um, and she was actually just so loving towards this child mm. and like incredibly hyper-focused on the child mm. and, you know, completely like not cognizant of the world around her yeah. and in so incredibly like drawn into the entire world that was this infant yeah um and it was a very sort of interesting experience from my perspective not being part of the psychiatric care team mm. but from from a different perspective um which is interesting now because i'm also working on psychiatry mm. so i work with um psychiatric patients every day and uh in a psychiatric specific hospital. Um, and that's one of the other reasons we've been talking about it so much is because, um, not only is like the reality of psychiatric illness totally different from like the media representation Mm -hmm. of it or generally, I mean, I'm, I'm generalizing here. I'm sure there are some really great examples. Um, Although I don't know any off the top of my head. I don't know any off the top of my head, but I'm sure they're out there. Someone has to have figured it out. Someone has done something to that effect. Um, Although it's probably not become a box office hit because it's not as excitingly dramatic as like the Joker or whatever. Totally. You know, whatever. Um, So yeah, I, I, it's sort of interesting because I was working 
so all this time I'm talking about how it's very rare that people with psychosis are actually dangerous. Mm. But the last month I've been working with the the 15 to 25 people who are actually dangerous. <laughs> so like my day-to-day reality of like having to have sort of extreme mm. security measures and guidelines and mm. like very specific behavioral rules in order to be in close contact mm-hmm. with patients who are very, very violent um, is like totally not what I want the general public to know about mental illness yeah. and psychosis. Well, and also, like, that's a specific ward for a specific subset of patients. And in a specific time frame. Yeah. So the vast majority of those patients... So I was working acute. Mm-hmm. So, like, literally, as they come in the door, like, yeah. the first person who manages um, their their psychosis. And almost all of them are psychotic. It's very rare that we would take anyone who's not... Mm. deeply psychotic can you actually explain the the definition of psychosis because i feel like that's also a colloquial term that's used very freely right so so there's a very specific medical definition of it um so so psychosis is basically or the the sort of schizophrenia type illnesses that are largely defined by psychosis is defined as the presence of hallucinations or delusions so Mm -hmm. both of those things Hallucinations are false sensory perceptions. So mm. you're experiencing a sensory stimulus that is not actually happening to you. Mm. So overwhelmingly, it's auditory. Mm-hmm. So people will hear voices, they'll hear noises, they'll hear many different people. Some of the hallmarks of schizophrenia are you hear people talking about you. Mm. So like you'll be sitting there and you'll hear multiple people having a discussion about you. Very often belittling, demeaning, mm. rude, um, gossiping about you, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Um, you can also get command type hallucinations, which are quite common, which tell you to do things either to yourself or, you know, in your environment or to other people or who tell you um, that other people are going to do things to you, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are hallucinations, very often auditory. Visual hallucinations are really quite rare. Mm-hmm. I know I wrote them into this chapter, but it is more often... <sighs> It's more often very severe disease or um, with substances on board. Mm. So substance-induced psychosis, which is definitely a thing. Mm. Um, Do you think in Walburga's case that could have also been with all the experimenting with her her brewing? Yeah, so that's what I tried to imply, Mm. that like maybe she had a predisposition Mm. and that the increased exploration of substances, Mm. because she's also quite old for the onset of psychosis, um, which is generally late teens, early mm. 20s, unless there's another inciting factor. Very interestingly, I know in the beginning of this podcast, we talked so much about substances. And I I did mention quite a bit about um, cannabis-induced psychosis mm. and cannabis being linked to the earlier development of severe mental illness mm. in susceptible individuals. But normally we see psychosis develop in late teens, early 20s. But if someone's been smoking cannabis for like, since they were like 11, 12, that sort of age, Mm -hmm. it usually brings the onset of the illness way down. So we see 13, 14 year olds, 15 year olds. Yeah. Which is, it's, it's not, it does happen, but it's not the more common Mm -hmm. presentation. Anyway. So psychosis is hallucinations and delusions. So hallucinations are your false sensory perceptions and delusions are fixed false beliefs that are not accepted in your subculture. So There are many different types of delusions. You can have jealous delusions, persecutory delusions, somatic delusions, nihilistic delusions. Religious delusions. Religious delusions are very, very common. Grandiose delusions. Mm -hmm. 
So, um, this is like such a complicated topic. I'm trying no, to like fine. give you like <laughs> a quick, it. yeah. Um, so, so yeah. Anyway, let me, let me just finish. So the other, other, um, characteristics of psychosis are grossly disorganized speech, grossly mm-hmm. disorganized behavior. And for the schizophrenia type illnesses specifically, you get negative symptoms and your negative symptoms are things like loss of drive, loss of will, Mm. loss of pleasure, very depressive type Mm. negative Mm. symptoms that show sort of like a central shutting down. Mm. Um, And and I kind of like to think of this as like your brain is very busy Mm -hmm. doing so much other work Mm -hmm. and your thoughts are disordered and you're hearing things that aren't there and, you know, oftentimes have racing thoughts. your brain is really busy in other places, so like your normal day-to-day functions st- start slowing down or stopping. So you lose your drive to be able to do basic self-care activities mm. because you're so internally preoccupied yeah. with these other processes happening. Um, so that that's what you call like a lot of the negative symptoms of schizophrenia. Mm. And very often there's quite a prodrome where there's like a slow grumbling process yeah. where the, the person may you know, withdraw, socially isolate, start to feel like something's wrong. Yeah. I'm ha- I've had quite a few patients who tell me, um, I knew I was crazy. I knew mm. I was going to be dangerous. So I had to get away from everyone. I was worried I would hurt somebody. Mm. Uh, and most of the time, these people, are, there's no way that they're going to hurt anyone. Yeah. I mean, they're obviously so worried about how yeah. they're going to impact others. Um, but that, that sort of picture of social is- mm. isolation and like stepping back from other people is pretty common. Um, so that's the schizophrenia type, um, psychoses. And then another type sort of well-recognized type, um, is mania. Mm. So mania is what you get with bipolar disorder type one. So it's this, oh my God. Okay. So bipolar disorder, (laughs) different from the, the schizophreniform and schizophrenia type illnesses, Mm. they are disorders of mood. Mm -hmm. Um, so what is the, I keep forgetting, like, what does everyone think of as bipolar disorder? Like, if you're bipolar, you're, you like, two different, two, two, two different people or something? Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's completely wrong, yeah. The actual condition is characterized by sort of extremes of mood, and it's not, like, in the same day. Yeah. It's periods of severe depression, yeah. followed by usually briefer ep- episodes of severe mood elevation. Mm. So that's usually when mania comes in so mania is like this excitable hyper aroused state where you don't need to sleep you know you you don't need to eat you sort of put all of your you have all of this increased energy and your your thoughts are racing and you have all of these ideas and you have so much energy and you know you you are super disinhibited and you think that you can do anything. Yeah. That's that's why I was going to talk about grandiosity here is because mm. mania usually gives you an, a sense of immense grandiosity. I am the most amazing person in the world. I am God. I am, mm-hmm. you know, I have patients who tell me that, like, they're Rick Ross's kid and, <laughs> like, Maybach music and mm. all this stuff. Like, you know, I'm the best soccer player in the world. I'm the bride of Jesus. Mm. I'm um, whatever it is. Just yeah. grandiosity. This incredible sense of self-confidence. Yeah. Um, which usually people report as feeling really good. Yeah. So they usually have very long periods of severe depression or low mood. Followed by this 
swing the other direction mm-hmm. into mania. Um, and mania has to last for more than a week or you have to be hospitalized yeah. for it. It's very severe. And you lose touch with reality. So mm-hmm. mania can include hallucinations, delusions, mm-hmm. the whole thing. Disorganized behavior yeah. and speech. Yeah. And that was kind of what Wahlberger was exhibiting. Yeah, so I didn't write her as specifically anything in mm-hmm. particular. Um, she definitely had a bit of grandiosity or elevation, mm-hmm. and like especially that painting. Mm-hmm. Um, if someone, you know, if someone's in their late teens, early twenties, even mid twenties, and they suddenly have a decreased need for sleep, but they don't feel tired, you know, they're sleeping like one, two, three hours a night, but they wake up totally refreshed. Mm-hmm. And then they have all this energy and they start talking like this. And oh my God, they have all these great ideas. And like, they really feel like they could do anything. And they have this new business venture and it starts getting like that. That, yeah. that is very classic, what we call classical euphoric mania. Mm. Um, and, it, and it's very dangerous. Mm. Um, not to other people again, but to themselves. Because the archetype of that classic euphoric mania is people get delusional thinking like, yeah. I can fly. So they jump off a building, mm. which yeah. is, you know... They're not suicidal. Yeah. They are just enacting on this grandiose delusion. Mm. Mm. Um, and because they're not in touch with reality, mm. they have no sense of, oh, but I'm going to fall. Yeah, no yeah. sense of danger or anything no. like that. Yeah, actually, that's a, that's a big part of this disinhibition is there is no sense of danger. Mm. Um, and people will get into situations that are very, potentially very dangerous. Mm. Um, yeah, so anyway, that's sort of the brief brief introduction to psychosis yeah it was really helpful the other the other instances where you can get psychosis is um if you have very severe major depressive disorder Mm -hmm. like when you have a whole functional shift and the hypothalamus is like i'm done we're shutting down Mm -hmm. um some patients will get what we call mood congruent hallucinations or delusions. Mm. And this is breaks with reality, but they are in keeping with the severe depressed mood. Mm. So um, a voice that tells you to kill yourself, Mm -hmm. for example, that's uh, or voices that tell you you're worthless Mm. that can happen in depression, but it's usually a sign that things are very severe and it's been untreated for a long time. Yeah. I think having said all of this and given people like sort of an idea of what, the sort of severe, more severe spectrum Mm -hmm. of mental illness is like, they are treatable conditions. Mm -hmm. So what all of these, except for um, the sort of depression picture, mania and psychosis and the sort of schizophrenia type conditions are reflections of, you have too much dopamine. Mm. Your dopamine is super high. Your brain is flooded with the stuff. Mm -hmm. So bathing in it. Yeah. It just makes me think of all the TikToks saying good soup because I <laughs> always soup. I always use the allegory that like yeah. your brain is sitting in a in a um, yeah, in a soup in a soup of neurotransmitters mm. and um, hormones and and all of these mm-hmm. things and that mental illness is very often a reflection of the soup is off mm. yeah. something in the soup there's too much yeah. this there's too little that yeah. you get that bad brain juice <laughs> exactly the bad brain juice yeah it's not good and sometimes patients will say that you know patients very often tell me like i want to go home and it's like okay well your brain's still sick still sick in there yeah all right like i know you want to go home yeah give it time mm-hmm. okay we got to readjust the soup. gotta flush out that juice <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to tell them that they're delusional. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, because they're going to be like, that's their new delusion. Oh, no, yeah. yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, but... um, Keep it to yourself. <laughs> well, sometimes when they, later yeah. when they come out of psychosis. And it's very interesting. Like, we give dopamine-blocking drugs. Mm. Um, so that's what most of the... There's two sort of big groups of antipsychotic medication. 
One is the old school one, like very um, older drugs like haloperidol, mm. which is like sort of the classic. You even hear it referenced yeah, in yeah. lots of media and, and movies and things that you would just knock someone out with. And, mm. you know, they just sort of hang out and drool for a while. So that's one of the much older ones. We still sometimes use it for acute sedation, but mm. we've actually run into problems now because it's so cheap to make. The manufacturer doesn't want to make it anymore. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's the same thing that happened with penicillin, mm. actually. Um, but anyway, so that's like sort of the old school version. And then we have a lot of newer antipsychotics as well, which have a better side effect profile for people. Um, mm. And there are many people who have these mental illnesses that do super well on yeah. the medication. And it is sometimes a struggle to find the balance that's appropriate for the mm. person. Mm-hmm. The right brain recipe, yes. <laughs> yeah. And brains are sensitive. They do things in response to your external environment. Mm. So let's say you're doing super well on your medication and it's been fine for five years, but then you have a super stressful life event. Yeah. Your brain juice is off now and mm. then your medication may need adjusting again. Yeah. So it requires a lot of like liaison work with mm-hmm. psychiatry um, to actually make sure that you have a good functional outcome on your meds. And mm-hmm. you can tell your psychiatrist, like, I have intolerable side effects yeah. on this medication. I want a different one. Give yeah. me a different one. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, the, the, the point of me talking about all of this is that like mental illness, even severe mental illness where, mm-hmm. you, where you could potentially break with reality is treatable. It's manageable. We can do great things for patients and they tend, I mean, depending on how severe things are and what their social circumstances mm. outside of the, mm. the treatment environment are, they can either do really well or they may need additional help with more inpatient time. Yeah. But anyway, right now I'm working with those inpatients when they come in, like mm. sort of immediate. Um, yeah. And like you said, it's a very small percentage of yeah. people who end up in that specific ward. Yeah. So, you know, like working with antisocial personality disorder mm. is different than working with schizophrenia and mania. Yeah. Which those patients might not be psychotic. Some of them actually are because they also have schizophrenia or whatever. Yeah. But anyway. That's a whole other complicated yeah. barrel of things. Yeah. Barrel of... Mm, yeah. Bad brain juice. <laughs> barrel of calling security. <laughs> yeah. But it's fine. I, I really enjoy the work. So yeah. I'm I'm really, really liking it. My biggest struggle at the moment actually is like... M- managing some of my colleagues yeah like and that's interesting not from the psychiatric side and the patient side is but dealing with some of the colleagues within that system but anyway i got way way sidetracked no that's good i think that gives us a lot of um perspective on um Wahlberg's character and understanding of how mental health is portrayed in media because that is something that drives me insane Yeah. yeah the other thing um that i wanted to mention is that it is not super rare Mm. that someone without any mental health condition can experience psychosis in pregnancy Mm -hmm. related to pregnancy you can have pregnancy induced psychosis Mm -hmm. just like you can have postpartum depression Mm -hmm. or intrapartum depression you like you know similar sort of a state of different hormones Mm. things are unbalanced your brain can tip one way or the other and can go into psychosis and it's not unheard of and Mm. yeah uh, yeah <laughs> even without substances or yeah. without any background mental health issue yeah. that can just happen totally so i thought why not walberga it makes sense and it, it makes sense for her character and how she 
developed this relationship with Regulus that's so different from, from Sirius. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking about. Like, what sort of situation would mm. snowball into this? Yeah. Yeah. And how that sets him up to be stuck in their ideology. Yeah. You know? It yeah. Very, very, like, Draco Malfoy vibes. Mm. Mm. Like, the love actually keeps you trapped in a terrible situation longer. Well, yeah, because because it's not a horrific, abusive environment, mm. you are not as likely to be like, this is obviously wrong. Yeah. You know, so, like Draco, like you're saying, yeah. it takes you longer to be like, I'm not okay with this. Yeah. You know, I have to reject this love. Yeah. Even though it's from a parent who I've grown up with, yeah. who has loved me who I incessantly. Love. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. So anyway. Yeah. It's super interesting. I think it, like, really reinforces that idea that, like, um, not to go back to blood magic or anything, but <laughs> I think it enforces that, like, idea that we explored where, like, it was easy for Harry to be on, like, the right side, quote-unquote. Yeah. You know? Like, growing up in that abusive it's environment. It's easy and to just, be like, against Sir- murder. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and for Sirius to be growing up in, like, an environment that's, like, so abusive and so blatantly terrible for him to be like, this sucks. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. there's gotta be a better way. Yeah. No. This doesn't feel right. I'm hurt every day. Or, yeah. like, you know, I'm exposed to things that are not okay. Yeah. Whereas, like, Draco and Regulus are showered in love, and it's... A lot of that is hidden. Yeah. And then, obviously, the things that it takes for Draco and Regulus both... Mm-hmm. To realize to what realize. the fuck is going on. Yeah. And, and the sacrifices that they have to make, then, once they're so fucking far in. Well, yeah. And also, how how traumatic that is to mm-hmm. make that realization as yeah. a teenager. Mm, definitely. Um anyway yeah i think it's it's an interesting thing because that was for me realizing that my parents were terrible i took way too long to figure it out you know like it was Mm. it took me a very long time to realize it um and i think it was like the same thing do you still think of them as terrible people though i don't think they're terrible people they're They're definitely terrible parents definitely terrible parents yeah um they've done terrible things Mm. That's a hard question. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Especially when you're thinking about someone who is dealing with their own... Yeah, exactly. ...nonsense. Yeah, Yeah. their own, like, life issues and... Yeah. Again, it's that, like, I can see that they have really unfortunate circumstances that they had kids in and it was really fucked up, but then, again, they made the choices that they made within that and Mm. it was terrible for me. Yeah. Mm. And you're also not, like, beholden to them... To make them feel better about it. Yeah, which that was really hard to do for a very long time. <laughs> I still think you do that a lot. Yeah, I definitely do with my dad still. Yeah. yeah. Even your mom. Yeah. Like the one time she's contacted you in the last, how many years? Three. Three years. And you were so nice to her immediately. Mm-hmm. And it was like, she's... I know, like the bar was so low, she just apologized but then didn't follow through. Yeah, and then didn't the follow things. through. And you were still nice. And then I was, we were all like, N- no. <laughs> you were doing so well. Oh my god, I am Draco Malfoy, right? <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And your mom's yeah. also a narcissist. Yeah. Yeah. Classic. Classic <laughs> narcissist. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and then I had a whole bunch of notes, but they're on my phone, and we're recording on it, so now I'm trying to remember what they were. The Unforgivables. Mm. Tell me about it. So we've talked about this before, Mm. how I'm, like, super interested in this idea that these three specific curses Mm -hmm. are the only ones that you... Aren't allowed to use. 
Oh yeah, but also that's never tracked or like reported mm-hmm. or like noticed. Mm-hmm. Like Harry casts an unforgivable, and it's not like Ministry wizards show up and are like, "You're under arrest." Yeah, like they show up when a house elf like smashes a cake, but like <laughs> not when he's performing like dangerous yeah. magic. So like in actuality, who who is this about? Mm. Who's this law for? Yeah, exactly. Like, so I kind of wanted to write about how much of a farce it is. Yeah, like. It is, though. Yeah. And also, uh, thinking about, like, is it is it useful to have unforgivables? Mm. If it is useful, are those the spells you want? Yeah, and, like, how many other, like, curses or spells, like, could have fit into that category? Like, because the Vada Kedavra, like, fine, that seems reasonable. You yeah. shouldn't murder other people. I'm yeah. not pro-murder. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, like... Surely, if you entrail expel someone, they are also gonna die. Or, right? Like, yeah. you need those. Yeah, sectum sempra. Like, yeah, what if you vanish someone's heart? Yo! Like, you're still murdering them. <laughs> oh my god. But, like, is that yeah. only, like, a little slap on the wrist? Like, yeah. you know, that was yeah. bad boy magic. Like, you're <laughs> Don't in time Don't do that out. again. Yeah, no dementors. Shame on you. Yeah, like, you have to, like, street sweep in Diagon Alley for six months. Oh, my God. I don't know. What, I don't even know what yeah. the, like, legal system looks totally. like. Totally. Or, like, even, like, the social, um, like, structures and influences on, like, that, uh, that affected that implementation of law. You know, like, what was going on, who was in charge, what was going on in wizarding yeah. society that, like, they decided these fucking three... Well, so, yeah, or decided that we need to open a prison. Yeah. Why do we need a prison? Why do we need Dementors? Were the Dementors there originally? Like, I don't know. They don't explain that shit. They don't explain that at all. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, I kind of thought, like, a way to tie the the parts of the chapter Mm. together to back into present day with Sirius Mm. was this idea. Because, like, in, in the Harry Potter books, in canon... The unforgivables are like, ooh, bad, don't do that, right? Like, nobody should... Yeah. yeah, But then also everyone uses them. Yeah. (laughs) But, like, I had this feeling like everyone's using them because, like, everyone's using them in the wizarding world. Yeah. Like, in pureblood households. Yeah. It's, like, not a weird thing. Mm. You know, they know they're not going to get in trouble for it. So why not? They're like, what are you going to do, arrest me? Yeah. I'm in my own house. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) <laughs> leave now and yeah. trail expelling yeah like, like, crucio yeah <laughs> I don't, two yeah. out of three yeah <laughs> fuck around and find out yeah exactly like and nobody would be the wiser yeah um yeah i don't know it just seemed like worth talking about and and especially this idea that like i, I love this concept that the pureblood families use them mm-hmm. to to habituate their family to them so that they couldn't be used against them. Yeah, totally. Because, like, how how vulnerable are you mm-hmm. when someone can just Imperio you? Yeah. that That's like, you, you're you at anyone's mercy. Yeah. But if someone can't Imperio you, that makes you incredibly powerful. Yeah, definitely. So, obviously, you would teach your children to throw off the Imperius mm. curse. Because we know people can do that. Yeah, definitely. So. Looking at you, Harry. <laughs> Yeah, but not just Harry, right? Yeah. Barty Crouch Sr. Yeah. Eventually. Yeah. And Barty Crouch Jr. Yeah. And we know, like, everyone in the DA could eventually do it, even though Ron struggled. 
Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Mm. Yeah, so even young kids. Yeah, exactly. So, like, we know that that's, like, a thing. Yeah, so I wanted Mm. to sort of explore that, and then for her to just be angry that, like, she didn't torture her kid enough to make him good enough. Yeah, like, are you fucking kidding? Like, this idea... That she imperiused him and, like, expected him to throw the curse off immediately. And then he, and then he was And then he was, like, under it for, like, two weeks. And she, the whole time, like, we were talking about joking mm-hmm. about it before, like, she probably just sent him on errands. Yeah. The whole time. Yeah. Just be like, please, son of a bitch, learn how to unimperious yourself. Yeah, like, exactly. This is like, ridiculous. You've got to figure it out eventually. What the fuck are you doing? You are an embarrassment. Yeah, exactly. Go to the bank. <laughs> <laughs> that is it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know, that's what I was thinking about. And mm. and I had so many ideas, like, the world is so wide open for you to discuss all different things in the history of the legislation yeah. and what curses and what people were involved. Mm. So I kind of went sort of a glib, fast approach, mm. but I still had fun writing it. Yeah, it was so. super fun. <laughs> and I can't yeah. get too bogged down in that, it's a whole other book. <laughs> Maybe we'll go into it in The Grindle Door. Yeah, yeah, obviously. Because <laughs> um, that's around the right time. Yeah, and that's line. a lot of politics. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Because don't you think Grindelwald Back would be like, Grindelwald. unforgivable? <laughs> I don't want to be forgiven. I deserve a little punishment. Oh don't you think, Albus? <laughs> that's their foreplay. <laughs> he, Grindelwald tortures Albus by making Albus Crucio him. Yeah. Yeah. That's like a lovely guilt circle. Oh, it really is. Yeah. Anyway. Get the hat. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we can't, we can't go there yet. We, we have to be serious for like ten more minutes. minutes. Be an adult. Don't you have other things you're going to ask me about the chapter? Um, I did, and I'm trying to remember. Because um, I don't have my list. Why don't you just pull it up on your phone? Excuse me, pardon me. <laughs> We're so low tech. <laughs> yeah, right. We only mm-hmm. have one device. Mm-hmm. We don't even have a pen and paper. You no, have I have a pen and paper. No. <laughs> um, oh, um, creature. Yeah. Trauma bonding with Walburga through this whole experience. Yeah. This poor thing being made to like help deliver. Well, I mean, like Walburga delivers her own baby, but creature just standing there sweating. <laughs> like, <sighs> did you identify with? Yeah, that? I did. <laughs> That was me attending every birth. Like, didn't have to actually do anything. (laughs) Sweating the whole time. Oh my god, that's the exact opposite of my experience with birth. (laughs) I had to do everything. It was terrible. Not everything. I didn't push a baby, but like... Close enough. (laughs) Almost everything. (laughs) Um, But yeah, creature... Yeah, I feel like we had to somehow explain his obsessive love of Wolberga and his, yeah. like, need to protect her and her mm. things and her legacy and her whole mm-hmm. being. And um, Regulus. And Regulus. And the bond he has with Regulus. Yeah. yeah. And how, like... Yeah, because he keeps that secret for so long yeah. after Regulus dies. And after Wolberga dies. Yeah. So, kind of had to explain that somehow. Mm-hmm. How else but trauma bonding? <laughs> Isn't that how everything Classic. Yeah. <laughs> People don't just love and appreciate each other anymore. It's really just trauma bonding. <laughs> am I wrong? Is it how we got <laughs> Are we trauma Are, bonding? Am I wrong? Can we be a little? <laughs> oh my god, that's so funny. <laughs> but yeah, I, I really, I liked thinking about 
explaining him better. Mm. I, I really want to explore more um, house elf like lore and society. Yeah, because there is a lot I could have written about mm. him knowing all these potions and like where did he get this information? Like where do house elves like get training to do all the things they do? Yeah, is it just like generational? They, they learn from their parents. They go to finishing school. <laughs> They have boarding schools. I'm just trying to, like, like imagine, you know, like, a mom house elf carrying around their baby, baby like, in a little papoose on their back, like, teaching where, them how to do potions. Where do they even come from? Like, do house elves bang and get pregnant? Yeah, yeah, they must. Right? Or they just, like, spawn in a cupboard somewhere in a house. <laughs> like, mushrooms? Yeah. Just, like, pop up. They're, like, mycelium in a house. Yeah. Like, yeah, no, I'm going with that yeah. one. <laughs> That's less traumatizing. Because, yeah. <laughs> I mean, creature. Yeah. Oh, creature. creature. won't. Creature won't. <laughs> <laughs> Just probably think about that. Stop. Okay. Stop it. Okay. I once saw the pairing on AO3 for Harry Potter and floorboards. Yeah, I've seen that one. And one of the warning tags was splinters. And I haven't recovered ever since. I feel like there's probably a creature in the floorboards. Stop it. It's <laughs> like, that's his first love. Don't lie. It's the house. <laughs> that, that crown molding. Man. That crown molding. <laughs> fucking staircase. Oh my god, what the fuck? Those <laughs> copper pots. <laughs> creature will. <laughs> creature absolutely will. <laughs> This is what worse than days, Grindledore? Yeah, what did you Yeah, it really is. One of these days I'm gonna start like a not start. I'm gonna write about what I think would be a parody only fans of like all of these Harry Potter characters. And it would be like creature waxing the floor like oh fuck yeah. <laughs> Fucking smooth. And then, like, Dumbledore, like, reading apology letters to Grindelwald and, like, oh expressing his undying love yeah. while Grindelwald puts him on mute. Yeah. <laughs> oh so I'm gonna have, like, all these, like, side characters and their OnlyFans. <laughs> Maybe I'll make it, like, a comic strip. Yeah. Oh, shit, that's fucking amazing. <laughs> I'm here for that. Yeah. What would Sirius's be? No, he doesn't need an OnlyFans. He's banging in real life. Oh, 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 okay. Yeah, no, he's busy. <laughs> he's busy. Life. No, this is for like Creature. Oh, okay. Umbridge. <laughs> Hagrid. Oh, you don't think Hagrid fucks? <laughs> no. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> unless, oh my like, God. unless like there's like one resident of Hogsmeade with like an extreme size kid. Yeah. <laughs> That's a very niche market. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. Oh, like Madame Rosmurda's yeah. only fans. Yeah. yeah. No, that's banging. No, that's that's yeah. Yeah. She's got a lot of subscribers. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh my god! Imagine if kids at Hogwarts found that. <laughs> you know they have. No, obviously. <laughs> Who else? Why do you think Ron was so keen? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. It's like Professor Binns has an only Oh my god. But it's just him reading the same shit he does in his class. He only has one mode. And it's like talking about the Goblin Rebellion. 
and he has so many subscribers. Yeah, <laughs> it's like no. weird ASMR. Yeah, no, but it's also just like Hogwarts students who didn't take notes, and <laughs> so then they can like pause and rewind or like print yeah. the captions. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they don't have to take yeah. notes. Oh my god, <laughs> that's her Hermione pass. Yeah. Obviously, she yeah. found the only fits. Oh <laughs> it's god. actually just like unlocked course content. Yeah, exactly. Oh my god. He gives out exam papers. <laughs> oh my god. Who else would have an OnlyFans? Madam Hooch. Oh, obviously. Yeah. Obviously. And mm-hmm. it would be super weird. You know it. So weird. Classic middle age. Lesbian. Lesbian. Yeah. But like not aware <clears throat> she's a lesbian. Just, you know, talking about them balls. <laughs> Anyway. Oh my god. That's hilarious. I'm gonna make this a comic. It's gonna mm-hmm. be my new drawing adventure. You should. Charlie has one. Yeah. It's like him posing in like skimpy underwear in front of dragons. Yeah, definitely. Doing like oh It's how he like pays yeah. for the reserve. Yeah. Like no, totally. he funds it. <laughs> he funds yeah. it single handedly. Single handedly. The in other his, people in his spanks are like taking photos, like, yeah, flex your bicep. Yeah, dude. right. <laughs> god, give a little ass. <laughs> Jesus! Did you up your protein this yeah. week? You're looking sad. Oh my God. Get that wand holster on your thigh, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> Go run around for an acre or two. Jesus, get those fucking veins popping. Get that sweat glistening. <laughs> Charlie's like, God, give it a rest. I started this for fun. <laughs> it's not fun anymore. <laughs> but oh, so necessary. He's like crying yeah. all the photos. <laughs> Oh my god, that's so funny. Sorry, I'm just checking the time. Oh, are we talking too much? No, I because if it hits an hour, then it cuts off. <coughs> yeah. Uh, that's how I get interrupted mid, like, OnlyFans spiel. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, who would be, like, the stripper OnlyFans? Severus Snape. No, man, he did. <laughs> he did. He did. He's gone. Uh, who has, like, a secret, like whole studio in the room of requirement obviously dumbledore i just was thinking it's obviously <laughs> he's dumbledore. definitely in, like thigh high patent leather leather um yeah. pleasers just, like thick woolen socks yeah <laughs> and a jock strap yes oh my like, god yeah it was a long ass beard <laughs> yikes fucking yikes Anyway, this is what AO3 has done to me. Yeah. We could go from having, like, a really academic discussion about, like, decreasing mental health stigma mm-hmm. to, like, Dumbledore's OnlyFans. We just did that. I know! I know! <laughs> We're there. Effortlessly. <laughs> Disturbingly easily. <laughs> How the mighty have fallen. Uh, yeah. So yeah. Also, can we talk about that really lovely comment that we stumbled on on Tumblr because it made my oh, heart hurt. Oh, we had it was so, so many cute. lovely comments, and I feel so bad because we hardly ever respond to people. Yeah, I just don't have the fucking time anymore. But, yeah, like I read every single one. Yeah, let's let's start at the beginning. One, we read every single one, and I usually screenshot them and send them to you, and I'm yeah. like, look, look at the people. <laughs> and two. Yeah, they are amazingly kind and nice, and I love every single person who leaves us a comment. Yeah. It is so... And who listens to this train wreck. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank You're you for validating. so affirming. 
Someone was like, it feels like I've been in therapy with you. And I was like, oh, oh let somebody get something out of it. <laughs> Motivation to keep going. Yeah, right. Another day. We're meaningful, <laughs> I guess. I think. At least I to think. one person. I know. <laughs> yeah, so thank you everyone who sends us messages on Tumblr, on, mm. on AO3, on Anchor itself. Yeah. We got like amazing message from yeah. on Anchor. Um, yeah, we deeply appreciate them yeah, and really are do. super humbled by them, or at least I am. I <laughs> it just inflates you. my ego to <laughs> no end, like you're creating a monster. Although, I saw the worst comment on Tumblr. Tum- oh, no. Tumblr? Tumblr? <laughs> Tumblr? <laughs> so stroke. This, this comment was so yeah. bad. It's like, it's like in part of my brain that's like atrophy. Jamming it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, where they were like, you know, when you post or, or every, every time you post on AO3 and you like await comments and kudos, Mm -hmm. you're just awaiting dopamine. I was like, how dare you ruin this for me? (laughs) Fucking dare you. Is this directed at me specifically? Somebody was like, you. Yeah. Someone listened to the Blood Magic podcast. (laughs) And they just decided to call me out. For you. (laughs) They've been posting about it for like 300 days waiting for me to see the post. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because I'm never on Tumblr. Oh, shame. Ugh, that was so brutal. I've decided to ignore that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I can only have so many things taken away from me before I just have like a meltdown in the street. Yeah. Like, rage quit. Yeah. 100%. I want my comment dopamine, okay? <laughs> I only, need it! I only get so much in the day. <laughs> you know, like, yesterday when, like, you were so excited about your pants, and I was like, who have we become? <laughs> Don't look at me like that. I'm disgusted by you for bringing that up. Am I supposed to feel bad about my dopamine pants? No, they're wonderful. Yeah, they're now my dopamine pants. I'm going to think about that every single time I put them on and be like, yeah, this ass is in dopamines. This is what I needed. Get that. This is what I get instead of drugs. Get that grandma serotonin. <laughs> Fucking loose fitting cuffed pants. Pretend adult pants. Gayest thing I've ever heard. Yeah, yeah. That's all my dopamine. All of it. Oh my god. That's amazing. No more drugs, only pants. <laughs> only pants. I'm gonna make it only fans of only pants. Yeah. It's just me like, oh. It's like hashtag sober life. Yeah. <laughs> this is what I get excited about yeah. now. Who's with me? <laughs> Let me hear you say, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's the saddest thing I've ever heard. Oh, I hate how you made my life just sound. (laughs) That's wonderful. It's amazing. I'm going to just, I'm going to go get like literally just actual dopamine. No, that's meth. Yeah. I was going to say, I was going to inject dopamine. You're going to go get what now? (laughs) Meth. (laughs) We've just taken several hundred steps backwards. (laughs) I know. That pants comment literally. Just undid how many years? (laughs) Like, we don't call it relapse anymore. We call it return to use. <laughs> that fucking pants comment Jesus walked God. me straight off the return to use plank. Not even my drug of choice. Oh God, straight for the so... IV dopamine. Yeah. <laughs> just skip all the other bullshit. <laughs> 
how I ended up oh in God. substance induced psychosis in like a 34 oh hours flat. It would take less than that. I was going to say, you think it'd take that long? 34 minutes. <laughs> 34 minutes flat. 34 minutes. Oh my God. Tell me it cut me off there. Nobody needs to hear me say this. Everybody needs yeah, Everyone's like, you guys really have it together. Nah, no. 34 minutes away. <laughs> 34 minutes away from drug induced psychosis. All it took After was, 10 years of sobriety. All it took was one comment about my pants. No, about how much I like my pants. My one moment of self-esteem. Taken from me. Corrupted. Oh, God. I love your pants. It's a little late to say that now, okay? I'm already off it's the very, fucking bridge. It's very endearing. Sure. Do we me go slice your car tires? <laughs> yeah, like, that'll stop me. Oh, another you reason. Have, you got I weak dopamine. <laughs> you got weak knees, I'll take you out. Don't think I won't. <laughs> okay. <laughs> There are several barriers, and I am, like, part of most of them. (laughs) You'll make sure you're part of most of them. It's fine. It's a good thing. I don't want to do math, guys. I promise. This is not on my to-do list. I would like to maybe enjoy something for 30 seconds without it being ruined, though. Like... I like, like, like enjoying a, the comments on AO3. Yeah, I would like to get a comment on AO3 that's like, your work was really meaningful for yeah. me, and me to be able to go, yes, without, without me immediately going, am I addicted to this? Yeah, right, is this pathological? I'm pathological. Kill me. There's no reason to live anymore. There's literally no reason! Oh my god. Just kidding. I think this is like, one of those classic moments of like the struggle of sobriety and addiction like you get so far in life and then those little boring moments yeah that one tumblr commenter couldn't you just keep your fucking mouth shut (laughs) i didn't need to hear about that keep your fucking mouth shut next time okay let me have my fucking comments do you have any idea the implications of your statement did you think you were just educating people yeah. It's like what's really funny is they were probably just like talking about like really young teenagers who were like don't really have anything better to do other than obsess about it. Me? You mean yeah. me? Are you talking about me? Oh my god. And then there's us who are like, I need that dopamine. I'm thirty years old and I might as well be twelve, okay? This is all I only need reaffirmation from Tumblr people to exist. It's that or meth. Oh That's where we are today. Just kidding. Just kidding. I'm doing great, guys. Don't don't be fooled. <laughs> We're allowed to have tantrums every now and again. Yeah, the only place I have tantrums is on the podcast. Yeah. The rest of the time, I'm very just silently sad. <laughs> That's so much worse. It's actually so much worse. So much worse. <laughs> oh my god. Okay, maybe not silently sad. Silently disgruntled. Is that better? I feel like I should stop talking this is like about we're myself gonna, We're going to circle back to me being like, you sure you don't want to come to therapy? <laughs> is your therapist going to be like, yeah, where else do you get dopamine? And I'm going to be like, I'm leaving. I'm doing anything else for me. Yeah, right? I They're, swear to God, lady. You're going to be like, I've really been into cornbread recently. And she's going to be like, don't you? Food is one of the greatest sources of dopamine. <gasps> yeah. So like, please don't open that door. No, 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 nope, nope, nope. I'm going to end up eating quinoa and only quinoa for the rest of the day. No, I can't. It triggers my IBS. 
candy cube. Good. I feel like you having IBS is gonna make me feel less excited about life. So that's fine. We both get to be miserable. This wet cardboard is really doing it for me. I really don't understand people who like quinoa. I'm just, I, we probably Which is hilarious because I actually love quinoa. I yeah, just can't eat it. You're the worst person. I probably just offended like half of our readers. It's okay. Yeah, I can't go back now. Not, not to like gaslight our listeners, but like you keep coming back. Oh my god. You're the problem. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, we're so thankful for the people. <laughs> oh, Has this been therapy enough for you guys today? <laughs> oh my god. Did you learn something about yourselves? <laughs> we learned too much about ourselves. I really hope the next time I go out in these pants, someone says they look nice. That's all I need. I just need that little rush of dopamine. <laughs> oh little no! Validation. <laughs> it really is problematic. Ask me about something else. So I can go back to being quietly disgusted. <laughs> oh my god. Um, <clears throat> we can tell our listeners how we um, tried smoking meat for the first time yesterday. Really thought you were going to say meth. <laughs> yeah, yesterday we tried meth for the first time. <laughs> you were like, and... we tried smoking and I was like, where is this going? Oh I don't remember any of this. It was the meth. How did you let me do this? You really are the problem. And then you said meat, and I was like, yeah, we're old. <laughs> we're, we're so old. It wasn't meth. It was chuck roast. It was meat. <laughs> it was it was meat. I it made, was real good, though. It was real good, and I made cornbread. It was great. Yeah, it was delicious. We yeah. introduced a lot of our friends to American barbecue. Yeah. And it was super fun. It was. It was really fun. Yeah. And better than the barbecue here. Yeah, I think so. I think so too, but maybe that's because we're American and we grew up with a specific kind of outdoor I, meats. I didn't really grow up with that kind of barbecue though. Oh, because okay. like I grew up with like hamburgers and hot dogs barbecue. Oh, okay. <clears throat> I had like a whole moment when I put the chicken on like the charcoal grill yesterday, and I was like, "This smells like my childhood <laughs> in such a weird way." <laughs> that's cool though. Yeah, like I, I wasn't expecting it at all. You know, like when a smell triggers a memory like so strongly, or like several Did you memories. Know your olfactory nerve is cranial nerve number one. It's like one of the oldest cranial nerves and like base of the brain, animal brain nerves. It is very closely linked to your memory. That makes a lot of sense because a lot of smells do weird things to me. Me too. Yeah. There are certain things I smell and I'm instantly like, gotta leave, go, gotta go, bye. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah. So, yeah. Anything else from this chapter you want to talk about? I don't know. No, there's not much else no, in really. there. It's great. I can't I wait enjoy for the next chapter. Yeah, I'm super excited. Sorry about, like, I love that we, like, left everyone on a cliffhanger and then just, like, suspended it Yeah, that's into also the ethers. where I'm getting dopamine from yeah. at the moment. That's yeah. all, like, yeah. It's gonna happen again. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> just don't think yeah, about it I too hard. Take it where I can, okay? Yeah, I love the cliffhanger. <laughs> if, again, not to gaslight people, but if you've gotten this far with me... You know what's coming. You know, you know what's coming. Trauma drama? Trauma bonding. Trauma bonding and cliffhangers. Uh-huh. That's like my unholy trinity. Yeah. Right there. 
unholy trinity. Isn't it? <coughs> I, I feel like that's pretty classic. Yeah, it is. What's your unholy trinity? Or holy, you can have the holy trinity. No, mine's also unholy. No, yours is just like anxiety. Mine's like anxiety, avoidance. I mean, that's part of anxiety, but... Avoidance behaviors is like the key component of anxiety. Sure. It is. Well, like in specific situations. Yeah, those are called specific phobias or agoraphobia. (laughs) Or panic disorder. Sure. (laughs) PTSD. It's classifiable. (laughs) Great. Great. Anyway. It's good to know I'm simple enough to be classified. We all are. We're all in the DSM-5. (laughs) Word for word. Some of us are just in many chapters. Uh, Yes. There we go. Or many parts of the same chapter. Yeah. Like the anxiety chapter, I feel like you hit a few. I hit several, yeah. Yeah. And then we jump right to, like, major depressive disorder and... (laughs) Checking Checking those those off. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not in any of those chapters. Oh, no? No, I'm in in other other chapters. Oh, okay. (laughs) So we cover, like, together we cover, like, several chunks. Yeah. Like, several broad categories. Mm. Mm. Good yeah. thing we have a podcast <laughs> to talk <laughs> to about. air it all out <laughs> to go to therapy with the listeners. God, I hope they're getting something out of this. Maybe now they know what psychosis is. I've done a good deed for yeah, the day. You've done your good deed. There's your dopamine. <laughs> Take your sprinkles. <laughs> sprinkles of meth. Oh my god. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Wait, what's your trinity? What's your holy trinity? And you know, I was gonna make the joke like. Holy. <laughs> like, I'm holy, Fred. <laughs> the oh, whole world of you related humor. <laughs> you go with holy. <laughs> so what's your holy trinity? Um, Anxiety or avoidance? Panic attacks. Panic, panic, panic disorder covers all of those? Yeah, okay, so panic disorder is <laughs> one leg. Um, existential dread. Mm-hmm. I don't know what's my third one. And low self-esteem. There we go. <laughs> there it fucking is. Wait, what was mine again? Trauma, drama, trauma, trauma bonding. And... <laughs> what was the other one? I can't. You're like falling on the floor. <laughs> the only thing keeping me together is the idea that it might be meth. It's my third pillar. <laughs> but dopamine. I say meth as a synonym for dopamine because basically when you do methamphetamine, it just releases a shit ton of dopamine in your brain, which is why it's so commonly associated with drug-induced psychosis. Mm. So I don't mean that to be glib. I'm being literal-ish. Kind of. (laughs) Oh my god. It's been a long day. It's been a long day. Okay, um, was there anything else you wanted to talk about? Did we cover enough Grindledore? Yeah. 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 Just enough. It's the right amount. Just give them a little taste. They come back for more. <laughs> not not to gaslight her. <laughs> They're also here for the dopamine. Yeah, seriously. Um, oh, can I just spend like two seconds complaining? Or, I don't know, screaming into the void about the, the new Fantastic Beast movie that's coming out? I don't know anything about it. I've only just seen I the, only title. Saw the title. It's The Secrets of Dumbledore, and it comes out in April. And That's I, all I know. I'm not sure why, but it filled me with unbridled rage when I saw it. Why? <laughs> I don't know. 
I have no idea. I think it's just because I don't trust the um the film production company or JK to like do any Is justice to this. Is she in charge those... of any of it? I mean, she helps write the script. Does she? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. I thought she just sold the rights and somebody else was just like running buck wild with that shit. And it's... that's why there were so many errors. <laughs> I think it's a little bit of both, but yeah. she is involved. So weird. Yeah. Because I know she was involved in the Cursed Child stuff. Yeah. But I didn't know about the... <laughs> just slinking lower and lower. <laughs> Literally, figuratively, metaphorically. Mentally, emotionally. Yeah. Yeah. Spiritually. Thanks for pointing it out to the yeah. listeners. <laughs> they want... They want to be here for this. Um, but why does it fill you with rage? I have no idea. I think it's just because I don't trust them to do any justice to the characters. I think it's because you hate the idea of Dumbledore. Maybe. I think you just, you hate Dumbledore. Oh, maybe that's it. We gotta write that Grindledore so I can take out all that rage. <laughs> I'm gonna take out all that rage. <laughs> and I'm gonna be like, yeah! <laughs> More! More! Again. Get the hat! Yeah, it's just dumb, I think, because, like, the whole plot line of this is a Dumbledore and yeah. didn't make any sense. Now there's going to be a whole movie about it. Mm-hmm. I don't know what to do with that. Yeah. I'm it's gonna, I'm it's gonna, like they're extrapolating on plot points that don't actually hold any relevance. Do you know what I mean? I'm going to watch it. I'm not going to watch it in theaters. I'm going to pirate it online. Yeah, obviously. Steal their shit. Yes. Yeah, for free. Yeah. And then we can have a whole podcast episode where yes. we critique it. Mm-hmm. Excellent. You can just air all of your I'm going to. Grievances. Yeah. It'll be like not chapter related. We'll do a special episode of just me screaming into the void about those movies. Fine. What if it's good? It won't be. There's won't no. Be. <laughs> what if it's good? No. You're right. It won't be. What if I'm mentally stable? <laughs> you give up hope. <laughs> I'm technically- As you're on the floor, don't give up hope. I'm technically mentally stable. <laughs> stable. Stable. Baseline. Baseline. Yeah. It's those pants. Like this they... is where it's at now. Oh There's no hope for any increase or decrease. Just here we are <laughs> into the future. I guess that's all we can hope for. Yeah. Uh, okay. But yeah, we have until April of next year. Like, oh shit, that's far away. Because you, yeah, you know they're gonna like do the slow release of trailers and spoiler oh, yeah. material, and you'll have plenty of time to be rageful about it. Cool. I'll just build that, store it. Yeah. Excellent. That's helpful. Release it at a future date. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, is there anything else you want to talk about? Do you want to talk about your art show coming up? <gasps> Oh my god, yeah. Tell the people. I'm doing an art show, and I'm terrified. Why are you terrified? Anxiety, yeah. We just talked yeah, about the Holy like, Trinity. Yeah, exactly. Did you forget? Did you forget? Low self-esteem, anxiety. Panic disorder. <laughs> Panic disorder, avoidance. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I think it's more of a trinity. It's like a quintuplet. Yeah, no, it's like a many-headed beast. <laughs> it's the Hydra. It's, the, it's the anxiety Hydra. <laughs> you cut off one head and two heads return. That's so true. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's that's like a sad, unhelpful metaphor. That's like makes anxiety way too powerful and cool, and unbeatable. Yeah, sometimes it feels that way. Oh my god. Um, Anyways, yeah, I'm really excited. You're gonna have an art show. It's gonna be awesome. Yeah, I'm doing it in honor of quitting my adult job. 
Being and an artist is an adult job. That's true, and my therapist keeps yelling at me for being disparaging. Yeah, we. I literally just re-listened to our episode discussion where you were like, I was like, you're an artist. You were like, ha 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 Because you hate that, and I feel like you haven't progressed at all. What do you do in therapy? <laughs> Why, are you, like, coming for her now? Yeah, I'm going to be like, hey, why haven't you worked more on this? She still can't handle the idea that being an artist is a real job. It's been years, oh man. You're an art therapist. Do something. Do something. Yeah, so even though you have a real show, mm-hmm. you have found a gallery with a gallery owner who wants to work with you and mm-hmm. showcase your art, yeah. who's really excited about your vision, yeah. who is super supportive, Yes. with lots of people who are really excited to attend your yeah. opening, and you still are like, <laughs> it's not a nervous. Real job. <laughs> what is it then? I'm just nervous. No, 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 like, if, if being an adult artist is not an adult job. I think <clears throat> it doesn't feel like, I think I still get hung up on. Don't even say the monetary thing, because someone is paying you to do illustrations for a book. Yeah. Shut the fuck up. And someone just bought all my ceramics. Yeah, your ceramics were sold out at a store in town. Mm-hmm. You are literally doing better than the vast majority of actual, like, people who say I'm an artist. And market themselves. Yeah. I don't have, market like, a professional myself. website. Yeah. yeah. I don't have a website. I don't market myself. <laughs> my friend just, like, yells at me to, like, send her photos so she can show people. Like, that's my entire marketing strategy. It's working. Yeah. Just because your art is really good. Thank you. Yeah. So um, you have a show in, um... At the end of November. Yeah. Yeah. Which I'm going to, and I'm bringing all the people to, and I'm going to meet your therapist yeah. at, where I can yell at her about <laughs> nothing, because I'm a nice person and a good partner. Oh my god. Oh my god. <laughs> That's how we ratchet that anxiety up. We just crank it up. It's several a, steps it's up. Exposure therapy. Oh, oh, yeah, is that what that is? That's a recognized oh. psychodynamic therapy. Uh huh. It's how you treat specific phobias. <laughs> exposure therapy. Great, great, cool. Yeah, that's good. Challenge the avoidance behavior. What am I avoiding? What are you avoiding? I'm doing it. Okay. <laughs> I'm just going to sweat the whole time. That's yeah. fine. That's avoidance therapy working, or exposure therapy working. Is that what that is? Yeah. Okay. Eventually you realize it's fine. You're not dying. It's just sweating, which is, like, shitty, but... <laughs> yeah, I'm like, when does the, the sweating world? stop? <laughs> <laughs> Like the fifth time you do an art show, or maybe like the seventeenth. I don't know. Or, or like, never. don't put yourself on a timeline. <laughs> Recovery isn't linear. We're so full of shit. I know. <laughs> no, but it's gonna be awesome. I'm excited. Hopefully, a bunch of my work colleagues mm. will come too That's and support exciting. you. Yeah. yeah. It'll be great. Yeah, the the woman who owns the gallery saw my artwork, and she was so funny, because she was like, it's super weird, but I'm super into it. But that's the thing, you, yeah. your work, like, resonates with a lot of people, which is great. Mm. So I'm really excited. We're doing, like, a very interesting, interesting show together. Yeah, and how many pieces do you still need to do? Um, I still have to start one, and I just have to finish off, like, three or four. But the last one that I still haven't started is the biggest one, so. Are you worried about it? Mm-hmm. You'll be fine. I'm definitely, like, I've procrastinated on it because I need a deadline to feel alive, and now I have a deadline and I'm terrified. (laughs) 
It's you like, just swing between yeah, those two. Yeah, I just swing wildly between the two. That's cool. Yeah. Like, I had a paper due at 9 o'clock this morning, and I submitted it, at, like, at 8.59. <laughs> it's okay. You do well with a deadline, and I do well with an audience. Yeah. Everybody has their kinks. <laughs> Everybody has their thing. Kinks. Kinks. Yeah. Uh, yes. Kinks. <laughs> Your kinks. <laughs> the potential humiliation of missing the deadline. <laughs> Oh no, do I have a humiliation kink? <laughs> oh, no. oh no, I am Dumbledore! Oh god! Better start that only thing. <laughs> Jesus Christ! Oh god. <laughs> and on that note. I think we should end it. Yeah. Not like end it. Are you like, breaking up with me on the podcast? Oh, I'm suicide. <laughs> <laughs> I was like in the middle saying that I was like I need to clarify that means point. I'm so confused. Point. It's so, I'm. <laughs> we should end the episode. Yeah. Yes. Go book a therapy appointment. Now I want to eat the cornbread. Okay, let's go. <laughs> Gotta get the dopamine. Yeah. Right. Somewhere. Somewhere. Okay. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>